Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 24 of my 60 music podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 24 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? So well, I'm just going to give you a brief description of what the show's all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams. I'm a 22-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 Music fan slash expert slash nerd. When each week with this podcast... Um, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and first talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks and then do my own personal analysis on the origin of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And then I dig deep into the history behind the track and in that part of the show I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who were the studio musicians on it, what studio the song was recorded at, the band members on the track, and all the juicy behind-the-scenes details on each and every song I talk about within each episode of this podcast. So just like last week's episode, this is going to be a two-parter. So um, part one, which is all about my interpretation and my analysis on the arrangement of the song, is already out. You can go check that out right now. And uh, this is going to be a part two. In this episode, we're going to really dig deep into the history behind uh, this week's band, which is Paul Rue and the Raiders, and last week's too. Um, we're going to talk about like how the band was formed, who inspired the people that wrote this particular song, which is by the way, Kicks. And I'm going to talk about all the and all the juicy behind the scenes details on on the recording session of the song, and that's going to be all all in this episode of this podcast. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind this band, Paul Rue and the Raiders. And let's talk about the man that produced this group as well and the two people that wrote this song and what inspired him to write this song. And again, this is another band that you might not be familiar with just by the name and you might not know any of the songs if you're around my age. But the origins of this group are very interesting, at least for me they were. And they were an incredibly successful band in the 60s, just like the Rascals, with 13 top 40 hits within that decade. But unlike the last band I talked about this show, the Rascals, which were more of a blue-eyed soul group, um, this band was very much an American garage rock band in its true form that came from the Pacific Northwest, a.k.a. Oregon, Idaho. But unlike other garage rock bands of its era, and let's be honest here, many bands of that genre did not nearly have the amount of commercial success that Paul Rue and the Raiders had. Um, most of these groups classified as garage rock in the 60s only really had one or two top 40 hits before completely disappearing into obscurity. For example, Question Mark and the Mysterians and the Electric Prunes and Strawberry Alarm Clock were essentially two-hit wonders, while the Blues Magoos and the Knickerbockers and the Standells were essentially one-hit wonders, whereas Paul Rue and the Raiders had a humongous string of hits that lasted for a very long time. And, uh, and they were also able to last through different sections of the 60s when you know, musical tastes were changing and people were, you know, gravitating towards different kind of music towards like 68, 69. They were still able to have a pretty uh, consistent amount of top 40 hits right into the late 60s and early 70s. And when a lot of music was changing and up uh, and the record by public's musical tastes were changing as well. 
And while most of the bands I just mentioned came into prominence after the Beatles took over the pop charts, um, Paul Revere and the Raiders are very much an active band before the Beatles even came to America, but they did not start scoring major hits until after the Beatles came onto the charts. Um, And one interesting thing about Paul Revere and the Raiders is that they were kind of a fusion between the really heavy British invasion groups like the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Yardbirds, and they're also a combination of a lot of that, um, a lot of those, a lot of those harmonies that you heard in a lot of songs by the Birds and the Hollies, and a lot of that jangly twelve-string guitar that was heard in a lot of their stuff as well. And in fact, most people don't know this, but the band itself goes back pretty far, all the way back to 1958. But once the Beatles invade the charts. They are marketed as an American band that was America's answers to the Beatles. And when they performed, they always played live, dressed up in Revolutionary War costumes to hype up the namesake of the band, which was Paul Revere, who, in in historical American terms, warned the U.S. that the British were invading their country. And that aesthetic was was what brought the band's image, even though I honestly don't know if there is any real connection between... Paul, the Paul Revere in the band, or the American historical figure of the late 1770s. But to take a closer look at the band's history, it all starts with the keyboard player Paul Revere and the group's original lead singer Mark Lindsay. They first met each other in 1958 when Paul Revere was in the restaurant business and he owned several restaurants within the Boise, Idaho area. And by the way, the band was originally from Boise, Idaho. That's kind of where they got started. And he met Lindsay when he was picking up hamburger buns at the bakery Lindsay worked at. And by the way, it was Paul Revere who was picking up the hamburger buns from the bakery that Mark Lindsay worked at. And he soon then joined his band, which was first called the Downbeats. But when the band got signed in Gardena Records, they changed their name to Paul Revere and the Raiders in 1960 to capitalize on the gimmick of Paul Revere's name. And at the time, they became one of the biggest garage rock bands at the Pacific Northwest. Having moved from Idaho to Oregon, and around this time, the band scored their first top 40 hit in April of 1961, an instrumental called Like Long Hair, which peaked at number 38 in that year. But around this time, uh, Paul Revere also got drafted into the military service, and Mark Lindsay found himself pumping gas in Oregon. And he did go on a nationwide tour in 1961 with Leon Russell playing keys and plays for Paul Revere. And by the way, Leon Russell was still at the time like not the Leon Russell that people know know him know him today. He wasn't like the solo artist. He was still very much um a member of the LA session musician um crew known as the Wrecking Crew. Around the summer time of 1962, the group moved from Idaho to Oregon and Mark Lindsay and Paul Revere found themselves working together again. This time with Drake the Kid Levin on guitar and Mike Doc Holliday on bass and Mike Smitty Smith on drums. Um, Phil Volk later go on to replace Mike Holliday as the bass player for the group. But Phil's connection with the band goes all the way back to when he saw Paul Revere with his group in Nampa High School in Nampa, Idaho in the early 60s um, before they moved to Oregon. He was also school buddies with the band's guitar player, Drake Levin, but he did not join the band as a full-time member of the group until January of 1965 when he dropped out of college and Revere offered him a position as a full-time bass player of the band and to go on tour with them as Mike Holiday was getting ready to leave the band for personal reasons. Um, Drake Levin and Phil Volk and Mike Smith also first played as a jazz 
pop trio before joining the Raiders. But once they joined the band, it was around this time that the band recorded their own version of a garage rock classic called Louie Louie. Coincidentally, in the same studio as the Kingsmen recorded that same song in Portland, Oregon in April of 1963. Um, their, ma- their new manager, Rogers Hart, paid them $50 for the session after he saw the play- band play at some ballrooms in the Portland area, and he became the band's business manager. It was originally released on the Tiny Sanday label, but it wasn't long before the single attracted the attention of the big major label, Columbia Records. And even though their version of Lulu was beat out by the Kingsman version in terms of sales and radio airplay, it did not diminish the potential Columbia song on the band, because the lead singer originally said that the band was signed to Columbia Records because they're a bunch of white bread kids trying to sound black. And... This brings me to a whole other point. Paul Ver and the Raiders were the first rock band of any kind signed to Columbia Records in the spring of 1963. Well, wait a minute. Back up for a second. What the heck does that mean? Well, that brings me to my second point on this episode of this podcast. See, at the time when Columbia signed Paul Ver and the Raiders... They're probably the most anti-rock and roll label that was out there at the time. And they're one of the slowest um, labels and one of the last corporate major labels to really give into rock and roll music and see it as a cash cow and a way to make a serious amount of money. And 90% of their acts at the time when they signed Paul Revere and the Raiders at Columbia Records were easy listening acts that catered more towards adult audiences and less on teenage audiences. And a lot of these singers included Johnny Mathis and Andy Williams and Barbra Streisand and Tony Bennett. And all these groups were very much catered for adults. The adults were the ones that were really listening to this, to these singers, but not the teenagers. Um, but when they signed the Paul Revere and the Raiders to Columbia Records, it was around that time that they finally decided that, hey, they just had to cash in on rock and roll. And they really realized that it was, in fact, a very big potential moneymaker for them. So along with signing Paul Revere and the Raiders, they also signed a, a white doo-wop and rhythm and blues singer named Dion. And they had a few of their easy listening acts record songs written by Brill-Building songwriters, who at the time had cornered the teen market writing songs that were very relatable to teenagers at the time. And some of those artists that record those Brill Building songs, uh, you know, that were quote-unquote considered easy listening and very much for the adults and not for the teenagers, were Steve Lawrence and Andy Williams. And by the way, both those artists were signed to Columbia Records. And even though the band was signed to label as early as 1963, they did not have a major hit for the label until 1965. Because at the time, the head of A&R for Columbia Records who, by the way, was Mitch Miller, hated rock and roll. And he would refuse to heavily promote any major rock and roll artist that was signed to his label. And they didn't, and unfortunately, because of that, Paul Revere and the Raiders didn't really start to pick up steam until after he retired and left the label. And he was replaced by Clive Davis in 1965. But moving on, let's get back to Paul Revere and the Raiders. Because at around 1965, Columbia Records assigned the band to a very young producer slash A&R man who was 
only about 23 at the time that he started working with a group named Terry Melcher. Now, Terry Melcher became the youngest producer slash A&R man for the label when the label first hired him when he was just 21 in 1963. His first producing project for the label was with a group guy named Bruce Johnson, who would later go on to become a member of the Beach Boys, and that project was called The Rip Chords. And they managed to have a huge hit in late 1963, early 1964, with a song called Hey Little Cobra. And it's also noteworthy to mention that Terry Melcher was also the son of famous actress Doris Day. And when Columbia signed him to work with Polliver and the Raiders, at the same time, he was also working for another big moneymaker band for Columbia that had more of a folk rock and less of a punk rock sound known as the Birds. And by the way, I will do a bird song at uh, some point in this podcast. I just really don't know when. And one really cool story about the touring days of the band is that the group's lead guitar player, Drake Levin, did all sorts of crazy stunts, like playing his guitar behind his head, jumping on the amp and standing on it, and playing on his knees. And at a show the band did in Seattle, Washington, a young guitar player saw him do all these crazy things and approached him after the show was over and complimented him and told him how much he inspired him to play like him one day. And when Drake Drake thanked him and asked him what what was his name, the man replied by saying that his name was Jimi Hendrix. A few more things about the Raiders before we move on to the song I'm talking about in this week's show. Um, They're also the first band to be endorsed by the European amp and guitar company Vox. And because of that, they were given free Vox gear. This included guitars and amps. And they're oftentimes being seen on TV with their gear. And they also got a regular spot on Dick Clark, nationally syndicated TV show where the action is. And that helped him out tremendously in terms of getting them promotion and nationwide exposure. And by the way, I'm going to reiterate to you guys that since they were known as Paul and the Raiders, and there was a strange coincidence with the leader of the band sharing the same name as a Revolutionary War historical figure, when they performed, they always dressed up in Revolutionary War attire, wearing outfits that American soldiers used to wear in the late 1770s to capitalize on the gimmick used for the band's name. They did this on TV and live and in person as well. It's also noteworthy to mention that for the band's first major hit for the label, the first ever usage of double track guitar, at least for a solo, was used on Just Like Me, and it was played by the band's lead guitar player, Drake Levin. But anyways, getting back to the song I'm talking about in this week's episode and last week's episode, which was Kicks, um, let's get back to that, shall we? Okay, so most of you are probably wondering by now, if you're listening to this whole episode, and who wrote the song, Kicks? Was it the band that wrote the song, or did outside writers write the song? Well, the latter answer in this case with this particular song is a correct answer. You see... This song was written by two real building songwriters named Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. And if you don't know who they are, I will go I will go into their history in more detail on another episode of this podcast. But anyways, um Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil were two of the one of the most very commercially successful husband and wife songwriting teams that come out of the Brill Building, and they were very close friends with another Brill Building songwriting husband and wife team named Jerry Goff and Carol King. Now I hope you guys are paying attention 
part one of this two-part episode of this podcast. And if you did, you have noticed I would that I was reiterating to you that the song is, in fact, about drug addiction. I'm going to prove to you that this song is, in fact, about drug addiction right now. Um, you see, Barry Mann, the lyricist for the song, wrote the song about his friend Jerry Goffin, who at the time had a serious drug addiction problem, and it was deeply interfering with Carol's life as a songwriter, as well as as a wife and a mother to her and Jerry's kids. And he wrote the song along with his wife Cynthia Wilde to warn Jerry to stop what he's doing with these drugs and go cold turkey on the drugs before it's too late and he succumbs to his addiction. And Barry also took creative liberties and dis- and he disguised his friend Jerry as a girl in this particular song instead of a guy, so that way the record buying public wouldn't even know that the song was in fact written about him. And also, when the couple wrote this song in 1965, they had just scored a huge hit with a British invasion band called The Animals. And by the way, that song is called We Gotta Get Out of This Place. Um, and they originally intended the song to be recorded by them as a good follow-up record to this, that song. And they were, but when they were originally approached by the band's producer, Terry Melcher, um, you know, that, 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 he just asked them if they had any songs that his band could record since he didn't totally believe they could come up with their original material yet. So they gave him this song, Hungry, as a follow-up single. And now, a quick note before we move on to another point. I've actually heard the original demo version of the song performed and recorded by Barry Mann, and it's not that much different harmonically or melodically than the hit version, ultimately recorded by Paul Verne and the Raiders. But it's completely different instrumentation-wise because the song's killer and instantly recognizable riff was played on a piano in the original demo version of this song, whereas on the recorded hit version, the riff was played on a 12-string guitar. Even And also, the original demo version was in G minor. The hit version was raised down a whole step to F minor. Now, a question about this band that might pop up in your mind by now, if you have listened to this whole episode, is did this band play on their own records? Well, to answer this question, in the early days of this band, yes, they did. On this record, band members Phil Volk is on bass, and by the way, he's playing the, the fuzz bass on a Fender Jazz bass, and Drake Levin is on lead guitar, and Paul Revere is on keyboards, but the group's producer also used a few session guys to augment the rest of this band. And on this record, he brought in Jerry Cole on rhythm guitar and Hal Blaine on drums. But to answer your question, yes, this band did play on their own recordings, but when the group experienced a major lineup change in the spring of 1967, when Phil Volk and Mike Sliff and Jim Harpo Valley all left the band, and by the way, Jim Valley came in to replace Drake Levin after Levin got drafted into the armed services, but Levin would come back as a member of the band in 1967 um, after he after he was discharged. But then all those people left the group to form their own band, Brotherhood. When that happened... Mark Lindsay and Paul Revere had no choice but to replace them with Keith Allison and Freddie Weller, but also used studio musicians to fill up the empty um, whole instrumentation holes that were originally filled by members of the band. And that all kind of got started with Him or Me, What's It Gonna Be? That was literally the first single that they used, like studio musicians instead of like members of the band, and plus Keith Allison and Freddie Weller. 
and uh, those other two new two editions of the band. And I believe they left the band because of disagreements on different musical directions uh, members of the band wanted to take, and they felt like that they were being left out of the creative process for the group. Because Phil Volk originally said that the group's last big hit with the group's tour core original lineup was written with him and Jim Valley, as well as well as Mark Lindsay and Terry Melcher. Even though Lindsay and Terry Melcher were the only writers ever given credit on the original 45 label, and uh, for the Columbia single at least. Now the band would continue to have a string of hits without them, but eventually Terry Melcher also left as producer of the group after a big scare that was literally dodging a bullet by the infamous Charles Manson with his family. Um, and Mark Lindsay took over as producer and head writer of the group. But at this point, the band was Mark Lindsay plus whoever he could hire as a session backup singer or musician. And he sooner or later went solo too in late 1969, early 1970. But his label did release one more Paul over in the Raider single that was originally slated as a Mark Lindsay solo single, but released as a Raiders track due to a contractual obligation by him and his label. And that song was the band's first and only number one single in 1971, and that was Indian Reservation. Paul Revere later go on to continue to perform uh, with his group, the Raiders, carrying on the namesake of the band with a revolving door of band members until his death in 2014. And at that point, the band became a tribute band with no original members, and Mark Lindsay continues to tour as a solo artist to this day, but I'm not sure exactly if he has any more shows coming up as of right now i mean just did the happy together tour this year but i'm not sure if he's going to do it again next year or if he's going to have any more shows coming up anytime soon i'll let you know that and phil Volko is also retired and is no longer playing with the band and i'm not really sure what jim harpa valley and freddie well are doing but i know keith allison is still actively um you know i'm not sure if he's performing but i, I think he is actually is performing He's still actively performing and still, um, you know, doing public appearances and meet and greets with fans. And I know that he's still very active to this day as well. So that concludes part two of episode number 24 of my 60s music podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you liked the information I talked about in this week's episode of the show, you learned something really cool, really interesting about um, the band Paul over in the Raiders from listening to this episode, you can email me at Sam at hickeywilliams.com uh, you can also follow me on instagram at i heart oldies and you can also check out more of my original music at sam um next week's episode it might not be a two-parter i might just i might not have enough information to really spread things out into a two-part episode i'm not really sure um what song and artist i'm going to be tackling next next week's episode but you guys will see when you guys get notification for next week's episode of the show what song and artist i'll be doing but um i'll keep you posted when i figure that out but anyways um i'm sam williams and thank you for joining me uh for this week's episode of the podcast the millennial throwback machine until next week please keep things groovy